Well, if you will, uh, turn to Psalm 126. In my Bible, it's on page 609, so that, that will help none of you. It's about halfway through the Bible. Um, I just want to encourage you, uh, before we get into this, that this evening, we're, we're just going to gather, we're, we're going to sing, we're going to worship, and we're going to celebrate kind of what God's done in all of our lives. Uh, you know, it's about a year since this has really affected sort of all of us, including the church. And so we're just going to carve out some space. You don't have to kind of give public testimony or kind of process what God's done in your life, but just come out here from one another and celebrate memories from this past year. Because memories are powerful, aren't they? Right? Memories don't just stay in the past. Right? Memories, they, they sort of haunt you. They, they can stalk you. Right? They, they, they have a profound impact on our lives. Have you ever just been walking and you smelled something and instantly you remember your grandmother's cooking? Or you saw something and it just stirred in your imagination something from the past? Or you tasted something and it was like a portal to the past and you thought, oh my goodness, this reminds me of that. A few months ago, someone in this church gave me a great gift. They gave me some banana ice cream. Now, uh, I think banana ice cream is the Bentley of ice creams. And I, I just want to say, I, I feel like I've had a, a small level of persecution for that belief. But it's my contentious that, uh, you know, banana ice cream, you've you got to have a sophisticated palate to really enjoy it. Now, the real reason why I love banana ice cream is it reminds me of my youth. You see, when I was young, growing up in Spokane, my mom and, my, my mom and dad would take me to Doyle's ice cream. And my mom always got banana ice cream and I hated it. But the more and more I tried it, the more I loved it. And so every time I have banana ice cream, I I think of those fond memories, right? This is what food and and sights and smells, they do. They, They conjure up these memories, sometimes for good, other times for ill. I think there's sort of a, a cultural a cultural wisdom right now that says, hey, well, whatever's in the past, just leave it in the past. Don't, don't think about it, right? Just, just be present, be in the moment, carpe diem, just, just seize the day. I think there might be even some uh, kind of a uh, cultural pressure against Christians to say, well, why do Christians just focus so much on the past? Well, why do you read a book that is, you know, written largely about the past? Well, why do you sing songs written in the past? In many ways, I think it's a good question. Why are Christians so preoccupied with the past? I mean, every time we gather on Sunday, I open up a book written in the past, largely about situations in the past. We sing songs about what God has done in the past. Why are Christians so preoccupied about the past? Well, the simple answer is that Christians believe that the past can have a profound impact on the present and on the future. That spending time in the past 
is time well spent. Now, this winter, we are studying a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And these, this, this sort of collection that are all you know, titled with a superscription, Psalms of Ascent, these were collected as psalms sung by pilgrims as they, they made uh, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem at various times throughout the year to, to go to various feasts. These were pilgrim psalms. And you'll notice, and, and hopefully you've noticed this in the last few weeks as we've gone through five of them, that uh, th- there's, a diverse, there's a diversity of psalms, aren't there? There's a diversity of psalms to meet the diversity of life. Right? Think of the psalms like a Spotify playlist. Right? On your playlist, you, know, you have various songs to meet the, meet the various moods that you're in or to meet the various kind of moments of life. So if you came to my house and you saw me washing dishes, I might be listening to Michael Jackson to just get me through it. All right? Or if I'm sitting and I'm reading and I'm, I'm reflecting, I, I turn on maybe a little Adele. If I want to have a dance party with my family, Neil Diamond, Sweet Caroline. Right? We, we, we all have various songs that we play at various times in our lives to, to meet the various situations, maybe even the, the various emotions that we're going through. And that's what we have in the Psalms, right? We have Psalms of praise and Psalms of lament. Psalms of trust and Psalms of supplication. We even have Psalms that don't easily fit into a box, right? There are a little of this and a little of that. Are they lament Psalms? Yes. Are they praise Psalms? Yes. And really, that's what we have in Psalm 126. We have a psalm of lament and praise sitting side by side. Now, if you look at Psalm 126, and I'm going to read it in a second, but if you look at Psalm 126, it divides perfectly, right? It divides in half. So, so you have verses 1 through 3 and then verses 4 to 6. And it's broken down, if you see, by the word restored. But in verse 1 and 3, the word restored is talking about past tense. And then there's a shift in verse 4, 5, and 6. And restored is talking about present tense and future tense. So God restored. And then starting in verse 4, 5, and 6, God, we pray that you would restore and that you one day will restore. And so really what we're going to learn this morning in this psalm is that the past, it shouldn't just stay in the past. Right? Timon and Pumbaa, those, those prophets of Disney, Akuna Matata, bad philosophy for life. The past can have a profound impact on the present and future. So this is the big idea. It should be behind me on the screen. And it's simply this, that God's faithfulness, God's, sorry, faithful restoration in the past is a reminder of God's faithful restoration in the future. Let me read the text. Psalm 126. A psalm, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. 
Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, did you notice, if you go back to verse 1, kind of through verse 3, there's a, there's a, a sort of escalation of emotion. Right? At first, right, he, he, he says, uh, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, talking about a, a past experience when God restored his people. Now, some, maybe even many, think that this is actually talking about the exile. If you remember from when we went through the book of Ezra, right? God's people were exiled for 70 years in Babylon. And then by God's faithfulness, he brings them out of exile. And, and you can imagine if you were, you know, an Israelite and, and all along you, you, you were told about the sounds and the smells and, the, and just the, the goodness of the land. And then one day you're there. So it could be that, but... but, but I think it's general, so it would apply to, to many times, many experiences when God's people have been restored. Their, their fortunes have been restored. And notice how it's described, right? This sort of restoration, as this pilgrim is meditating on this restoration, he says it's, it's like a dream. You ever had those experiences? Right? Those experiences where it's just too good to be true, where you like pinch yourself and are like, is this real? Well, that's what this psalmist is experiencing, right? He's experiencing something so good, so amazing. God's grace, God's restorative grace in their lives that he goes, it's like a dream. And then starting in verse 2, he he laughs, right? Notice that? Then our mouth was filled with laughter. Have Have you ever thought about how laughter works? Laughter sort of works uh, like this, right? Laughter kind of uh, is, is a twist. Laughter comes when the unexpected comes, right? That, that's, that's how a, a joke works, right? You tell a joke and you think it's going this way and there's an abrupt turn, right? Or it's a, a life experience in which you see something and you think it's going to go one way, but there's an unexpected twist, you know, it, this happens quite often, actually, in my family. We'll be on a walk or we'll be going somewhere, and my kids are, like, messing around. They're fooling around. They're not paying attention, and they hit a tree, and they fall over, right? And, and don't call CPS, but, like, it's hilarious, <laughs> right? My, my, my wife and I love slapstick comedy. My kids hate it, but it's so hard when you see, you know, the unfortunate sin of a, of a kid falling. It's hard not to laugh, right? right? Have you ever tried to, to, to not laugh when something's funny? Right? It's like holding in a sneeze, right? You just look stupid trying to, to hold it in. Right? I love those people who just, you know, it's like a full-bodied laugh. I love those people. It's wonderful. And here's this, here's this pilgrim, Right? Here's this pilgrim who's, who's experienced restoration in the past. He's, he's thinking about it, and he just starts laughing. 
He just starts laughing. And then, what happens third? Well, third, he begins to shout with joy. He starts to praise God, right? That's how it works, right? When you've, experiencing, when you've experienced God's work in your life, when you've meditated on God's just outrageous, unexpected, absurd grace, you first kind of pinch yourself. You're at awe. Then you kind of laugh. And then you praise God. Years ago, my family, we just had one of those months, right? Actually, one of those few months where just bills, unexpected bills kept piling up. And I'm like, I don't know how we're going to do it, right? We've all experienced those sorts of things. And I remember thinking like, okay, what's my side hustle? How do I pay for this sort of thing? Or I started like looking in the garage, going like, what can I sell? Because honestly, it was about $3,000 that I, that I needed to kind of make it work for the next few months. And so I'm sort of ashamed to say this, but after strategizing, after thinking, after kind of going through my garage, only then did I begin to pray. And so I prayed. I, I prayed that God would provide. I prayed that God would show up and restore our sort of financial fortunes. And then I went about my day. I, I mean, I, I didn't forget, but I, I just went about my day and I sort of had this Low-level trust that everything was going to be okay. I was driving home that day, and I, like I usually did, I stopped to get the mail. And so I looked, and you know, you, you got you know, various ads or whatever. But it was interesting because there was a letter from our insurance company. So I opened it up, and I read it. And evidently, we had overpaid our insurance the previous year. And so there was a check for $3,000 that same day, right? I think it was actually like $3,004 or something, right? Now, now, what did I do? I'll tell you exactly what I did. First, life kind of started going in slow motion. I was like, is this real? Like, I'm looking, I'm like, is this a joke? It just didn't feel real. Then I started laughing, right? This is absurd. This is, must, this is ridiculous, right? I'm like skipping like a five-year-old. And then I tilted my head upwards and just thanked God, praised God for his kindness. Isn't that how it works in your life? If you've ever experienced that, when God just shows up in a wonderful way, it it works like that, right? That's the escalation from shock to awe to laughter to praise. It's exactly how it worked when, when my best friend growing up became a Christian, right? shock at just the absurdity of my friend becoming a Christian and then just the praise that God would kind of write that absurd salvation into his story. We've all experienced this. And that's how it works. And that's how it works here for this pilgrim as he meditates on the past. But, but then notice I want to point out one more thing in this section and it's in verse 2. We read, Then they said among the nations... The Lord has done, has done great things for them. Notice who's speaking. Notice who's gossiping. Look who's talking. It's the nations. It's the unbelieving world. Christians, n- n- know this. 
the, the world is watching. The, the world is taking note. And here we see that, that, you know, God's people are restored. Maybe it's the exile or maybe it's something else. But the nations, the unbelieving world are looking and going, God did something. I, I, I might not know why that's happened, but I can see God working. Right? The world, the unbelieving world may be blind to their sin, or I'll put it better, are blind to their sin, but they're not completely blind. They can see God at work. It, it sort of reminds me of a, an old story in the 18th century. Uh, there was David Hume, who was a uh, agnostic at best, but he was a philosopher who was not a Christian and uh, very much attacked the Christian church. And one day he was in, in London and he was walking very fast on a London street and a friend stopped him and said, where are you off to in such a hurry? And he said, I- I'm off to, s- to, to hear George Whitfield preach. And his friend goes, why? You, know, you don't believe George Whitfield, that, that evangelical preacher? And he said, no, I don't. But George Whitfield believes what he preaches. And he went to see that man. Right? He, he, his curiosity was piqued. He was hearing about God's work in London, and he just wanted to see it. He wanted to experience it. And so he went. You see, when God works, when God delivers, when God restores, when God displays that sort of work in and through the church, the world can see it. I really do think this is the power of testimonies, right? Testimonies are basically just declaring what God has done in and through your lives. And I think just by way of application, we we learn here that it's never good to hide them. It's never good to just not talk about them. We're to display our testimony and our testimonies. I mean, isn't that your experience, right? Right? I mean, some of the most profound moments of joy in this last three years of being your pastor have been sitting around your table or you sitting around my table as we talk about God's salvation in your lives, right? Those restorative works. We're we're going around and and we laugh, right? Right? Because we talk about how we were as kids and then just the absurdity of God saving us and we're just chuckling about God's irony, right? That God would choose any of us. Those are some of the most profound moments Moments of joy and laughter. And I think also particularly, I think this is why Christians have always and and will continue to, and I would encourage you to, read Christian biographies of Christian men and women. Particularly missionary biographies or autobiographies. I mean, they they do something as as you see God displaying his grace, his, his restoring grace amongst the people, you know, almost every tribe, tongue, and nation. When you read those stories, when you hear those stories, right, it's, there's profound joy and laughter. I think we should nourish our souls in those sorts of stories. I, I think we ought to share those stories with our kids, right? Our, our kids should, should just meditate and, and be saturated on the, just the grizzle of those Stories, God's restorative works throughout the world. Stories like John Patton. I don't know if you know this story, 
John Patton moved his family from England to uh, an area to spread the gospel among cannibals, warring people. And one night, right before, you know, they weren't there very long, they're, they're there, and the people don't want them there. And they surround their little hut, and with spears, they're chanting, we're going to kill you tonight. And so there's John Patton and his family, and they get down on their knees, and they pray, 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 just waiting for the attack to come. And they keep praying, and they wake up in the morning, and they are gone, and they survive the night by chance. A few months later, they meet this, this guy, and they're talking, and they find out that this guy was there that night. And they say, why didn't you come and attack us? Why didn't you come and kill us? And this local man said, well, we couldn't. I mean, we couldn't. There were hosts of, uh, of these angelic men with, with flaming spears. We couldn't attack you. You were protected. Now, as you tell those sorts of stories to your kids, your kids are going to go, Mom, Dad, is that true? Did that really happen? You're going to go, yeah, that really did happen. And I promise you this, you're going to see them first go, that's like a dream. They're going to have awe. And then they're going to start to laugh. And then they're going to praise God. This is the world we live in. God is restoring all things to himself. These are the sorts of stories embedded all throughout your lives, all throughout the world. And as we meditate on them, as we think of them, as we share them, we're encouraged to do just what this pilgrim did, right? We pinch ourselves, we're at awe, we laugh, and we praise God. I, I think there's a lie out there that says that Christians shouldn't laugh. We shouldn't enjoy this world. Oh, I think that's just utterly rubbish. That's just a lie. I mean, it's just this is the way I frame it. If Christians don't have anything to laugh about, the world has nothing to laugh about. Because Christians have been saved by God. Just think about, you know, we worship a God who got out of the grave, who himself says that he will come back and resurrect us. I mean, that's absurd in one sense. True, but it's wonderfully true. I mean, not, not only that, not, not only is it laughable to think about our own salvation, that, that God would redeem people to himself through Jesus Christ, but, but just think about the world. I mean, my, my, my family yesterday went to the Tacoma Zoo, the Point Deviance Zoo, and we're, we're, we're walking around and we saw this taper, right? It's like half pig, half elephant, right? And we literally walked and I just saw my kids erupt in laughter. I mean, you can't laugh when you see a pig with a trunk. And it exists. And I think God just said, you're welcome. <laughs> like, here you go. I have no idea, but elephant, pig, together, laugh all you want. I love you. We're meant to laugh. Or I think of the that 19th century Baptist pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who, I love telling Spurgeon stories. So, uh, you know, he, he was walking with a, a good friend of his, another pastor, and this pastor said, told us some story that was funny, and I guess they were just laughing themselves silly. And, and when the laughter subsided, Spurgeon said, okay, let's kneel down 
And they both knelt down and they prayed and they thanked God for the gift of laughter. Isn't that good? We should thank God for the gift of laughter. For for those little ways in which God restores us. Well, when God restores laughter and joy and gladness, they break into God's people. And that past uh, restoration, it's a reminder of God's Here's the second point. Here's verses four and six. It's a reminder of God's faithful restoration in the present and in the future. Look at verse four with me. Right, verse four, there's a transition. that The pilgrim begins to pray and he prays, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So, so once again, right, he prays, okay, God, I know that you've restored us in the past, but right now I need your restoration. You ever prayed like that? God, I know you showed up last year. I need you today. God, I, I know you did this. I need you to do that. God, 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 I, I need your protection. I need your provision. I need your comfort. I need your, I just need you. Maybe you're feeling spiritually dry, apathetic. And so you just pray, God, please show up. Restore me physically, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, it's one thing to look back about God's restoring grace in your life and, and, and go through this sort of kind of escalation of emotions we see in verse 1 and 3. But, but what happens when you're just in the midst of it and, and God hasn't restored you yet? And you're sitting in that tension. That's the pilgrim here, right? He's seen God work in the past, and he's now praying that God would work in the present. I think so often pain and joy go together. Lament and praise go together. They so often do. They're sort of like the peanut butter and jelly of life. They get messy my guess is some of the greatest joys in our lives are connected to some of the deepest pain we've experienced too. And so here we have, side by side, we've got this praise in verses 1 and 3, and then this just calling out, calling out for help, for, for restoration. And so the pilgrim, in order for us to sort of understand this, he illustrates that prayer in two ways, starting in verse 4. He says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, the, the Negev, it's, um, it's south of Israel, right? It, it's, it's a vast desert. For most of the year, it's miserable. You, you don't want to live there. But every once in a while, once a year, maybe once every other year, all of a sudden, when you least expect it, rain comes. And the Negev It just blossoms with life. And so the psalmist says, our lives are like that. Sometimes they're drought stricken. And then all of a sudden, after years of barrenness, after years of weeping, after years of spiritual drought, the rain comes. That might be this past year for you. You might feel like emotional, spiritual, physical 
negevs. And here it's saying that when you least expect it, rain comes. So be patient. Laughter, joy comes. It comes suddenly. It comes without warning. It comes unexpectedly. But it comes. The the, the second illustration relates to farming, doesn't it? That's in verses 5 and 6. Right? We got this sowing and reaping, this harvest language. It's the sort of image is about, you know, working hard as farmers work hard, right? And sowing seeds day after day after day after day and trusting that the Lord, as you sow those seeds, trusting the Lord will bring the harvest. Those who sow in tears, we read, shall reap with shouts of joy. So, What verse 5 is saying when it says, those who sow in tears, it's saying that that all of your pain, all of your baggage, all of your suffering, all of your hardship, all of your trials are seeds. Seeds meant to be planted. You're to sow your weeping. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I think it's pretty obvious that, that as we go through this, that this author, he's acquainted with darkness. I mean, this author knows hardship. He, he knows pain, doesn't he? I mean, he's no stranger to dark days. But that's God's people. God's people, especially here, they're, they're carrying the, the painful memory of the exile in their bones. They're carrying the scars of oppression on their backs. They have worn feet from the wilderness. They have bloodshot eyes from sleepless nights. They have, when you think about God's people, they have spiritual PTSD. They have tears that could fill a tanker. That's God's people. It could be your last year. It could be your next year. Maybe the memory of 2020 just fills you with tears and sadness. And as you look back, all you have are seeds, seeds of that pain. Well, this text is saying you need to plant those seeds. You need to plant those seeds in God himself. Now, we all want joy. We all want laughter. But I think sometimes we go about it the wrong way, right? What we do is we try to, you know, live life thinking about how we can manage our pain. So when we say, oh, that person might bring me pain, I'll avoid them. Or that conversation, that'll bring me pain, that'll be awkward, going to avoid that conversation as well. Or, or that, that risk might embarrass me, so I'm not going to do that. And so we live life managing our pain, thinking that if we just distance ourselves from anything that could bring us pain, then we'll have laughter. Then we'll have joy. But in doing so, in sort of mitigating our pain, in avoiding our pain, we eventually have to run to something for joy. It might be that vacation. It might be just binging on Netflix. 
But you see here in, in Psalm 126, there isn't a hint of that. It's not just avoid or manage your pain. Laughter, as one author put it, is a result of living in the midst of God's great works. Enjoyment is not an escape from boredom. It's a plunge by faith in God's work. Joy is not dependent on our good luck in escaping hardship. It's not dependent on our good health and avoidance of pain. Christian joy actually is in the midst of pain. It's in the midst of suffering. It's in the midst of loneliness. It's in the midst of misfortune. Now, how can that be? How is that even possible? Well, God has always been bringing beauty out of ashes. God's always been a restorative God. That, 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 that is the Bible from beginning to end. God restoring all things to himself through Jesus Christ. And just think about Jesus Christ here. He is the perfect example of this. You, you remember Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem? What does Jesus do? He, he like turns the corner, you know, on the first avenue, Palestine, and he sees Jerusalem and he weeps. Remember that? He weeps. He sees Jerusalem and he weeps knowing judgment's coming. Jerusalem will be destroyed. He, he, he knows people are going to reject him. He, he sees in Jerusalem his greatest Suffering is right there. His greatest trial there in the garden. And he weeps. He weeps for his people. But that weeping doesn't stay forever. Right? Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't just crying that led him to the cross. There was a mixture of sadness and joy. God brings beauty out of ashes. Jesus wept. The judgment was coming. But then bursting from those tears is resurrected life, right? Jesus dies, but then is resurrected. Jesus plants the seed of his life in God's sovereign plan and will. He entrusts it to his father and bursting from that seed is life, resurrected life and joy. And hidden in that seed, that gospel seed, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is our. We, We can plant that same seed knowing that like Christ in his death and resurrection, so we, we can have a death to life story as well. God can bring beauty out of our ashes. God can bring joy as we scatter our seeds of weeping. The gospel is all about the misfortune turning into fortune. You know, misfortune coming upon God's son and fortune, riches coming upon all those who trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is about. And and just notice, if you go back up to verse 3, I just want to point out, if if you look at verse 3, you you see God's, you know, the the nation saying, or verse 2, the Lord has done great things for them, right? The nations are outsiders looking in. And then, verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. There's a way to go from an outsider to an insider. 
to, to go just looking in going, wow, God has done great things in your life to saying God has done great things in my life. And that is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God bringing fortune on the nations through all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We all have sadness. Sadness comes in, in lots of ways, right? We can be sad because of, of personal tragedy. We can be sad because of our own sin. But ultimately, we're sad because God has not restored all things to himself. And so in the little ways in which God restores us, right, just, just showers us with grace and mercy, just those little ways, right, those, those little ways, those little $3,000 checks that just show up randomly, those, those little text messages that you're like, I just need someone to encourage me, and you get a text, right? Those sorts of things, those little ways. There's just a taste. There's just an appetizer. They're just a foretaste of the ultimate restoration will come at Christ's return. Today, as we await our Savior's return, we experience both tears and laughter. But one day, only laughter. And until that day, we pray for perseverance and we pray that we would go deeper and deeper into God's wonderful works and to think about them, to meditate on them, and to know that when God was faithful in the past, he's going to be faithful in the present. In all the little ways in which God has restored you, he's going to continue that faithfulness in the present and in the future. Let's pray. God, we, we are grateful for this world for all that you've done in and through this world. But, but, but ultimately, Lord, we're grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, who saved us. Lord, we pray that as we think of our union with Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray, Lord, that it would, it would stir in us greater fidelity to you, that we trust you deeper and deeper each and every day. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.